you're listening to the Cinecast, the official Cinephile Chicago podcast. I'm co-managing editor Kat Sachs, here today with a special mini-episode featuring an interview with a London-based filmmaker, Charlie Shackleton, whose 2021 film The Afterlight screens Wednesday, May 11th at 7.30 p.m. at Northeastern Illinois University, a presentation of our friends at the Chicago Film Society. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And um, you told me, but I'd love listeners to hear where you are right now. Uh, I'm currently in a very serene, idyllic spot uh, in the middle of Prospect Park in Brooklyn, sitting literally on a log. Uh, and there is sort of a very light pitter-patter of rain around me, but not enough to be annoying. <laughs> uh, and it's just a very uh, kind of ideal start to the day. Yeah, it sounds like you're a character in Snow White or something. <laughs> the <laughs> animals will just convene around you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the vibe. <laughs> Great. Well, Charlie, for those not familiar with your practice, um, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and exactly what you're doing in the realm of moving images? Yeah, sure. Um, so primarily, I am a nonfiction filmmaker. Uh, I make documentaries of various kinds. Um, but my background is as a film critic. So some of the films I've made kind of blur those two uh, things and are about cinema, either kind of the role that it plays in our lives or its nature as a kind of living, evolving archive. Um, and the film that is screening next week is kind of a combination of all those ideas. Um, so it's a, a feature-length collage of fragments, uh, hundreds and hundreds of film fragments, mostly from the first half of cinema history. Um, and the idea behind it is that through these fragments, the film draws together hundreds and hundreds of cast members from all over the world, from all kinds of different genres, both you know, major stars who've you know, gone down in history and forgotten uh, character actors or sideline performers and it gathers them all together into this collage and the thing that unifies them is that everyone who appears on screen however fleetingly is no longer alive so the film my film the afterlight becomes this kind of resting place almost for these performances that have lived on through cultural memory for as long as they may or may not live on uh, depending on how we choose to preserve and revisit and cherish or neglect these films. So I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with your work in general, um, kind of before we get specifically to uh, the film in question, The Afterlight. Um, and I saw that, you know, Beyond Clueless is streaming on movie, which is something else that listeners can view of your work before going to see the afterlight. Um, I saw that you have one uh, very funnily named Histoire du TikTok, which is very, yeah. That... Uh, yeah but... <laughs> so yeah, that's a, a kind of video essay I made about uh, probably three years ago now uh, about the then relatively new phenomenon of uh, young people uh, making film criticism of one kind or another on the popular app TikTok. Um, and I'm always kind of embarrassed to think of it still being online because it was one of those things where the culture of those uh, apps obviously evolved so quickly that I felt like even in 2019, when I finally 
finished editing that and put it online, I already felt like, you know, the grandfather who doesn't really understand what the kids are doing uh, because, you know, the memes or references that were in it were already outdated a month or two after I'd started working on it. Uh, and of course, at this point, I can't imagine how ancient they seem to the young people who populate that app. It truly is a history <laughs> of some of the early TikTok memes, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, it already feels like excavation, you know, like some of the <laughs> some of the culture that was dominant on that app three years ago feels as outdated as, you know, early cinema does to us now. That's, yeah, that's hilarious. I feel the same way. Like I use TikTok and I not as much as I would imagine a lot of younger people do, but referencing memes or sounds like a month later and people are just like you're still on that and I'm like yeah <laughs> but I guess everyone else has moved on <laughs> yeah no I knew what I knew what I was getting into I was prepared to be embarrassed in front of 19 year olds <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> I wanted to talk also a little bit about Beyond Clueless just because I think it's really exciting and maybe there are other examples but I think it's exciting that um you know listeners and uh viewers of next week's film uh, will have an opportunity to see something else of your work if they subscribe to Mubi. Um, can you talk a little bit about, a little bit about Beyond Clues? Yeah, sure. So that was my first film. Um, I made it uh, when I was mostly, as I say, working as a film critic. Um, and I'd become kind of, I was in my early 20s and I'd kind of become newly fascinated by revisiting all the teen movies that I loved as a teenager um, and now that I was you know entering adulthood or a couple of years into adulthood seeing them through a slightly different lens and already these movies that I relatively uncritically adored as an adolescent started to take on a slightly different edge and, and felt a little bit like self-portraits in a way you know you, you revisit something that you loved when you're at a very impressionable age and it's a bit like you're looking at yourself um so i wanted to to do something about that feeling that that feeling of kind of mixed nostalgia and affection but also unease at looking at something that that meant a lot to you when you're a teenager um and i think initially because it was my you know what i knew i imagined that that would be a a piece of writing of some kind. Um, but then I started thinking about making it as a film and, and the opportunities that would offer me to um, create something that felt like a teen movie as much as it was also intended as a critique of the teen genre. Um, and so that was my first foray into reappropriating uh, film material in order to make something about film. Um, which is a form that I've kind of stayed pretty close to in the decade since. Um, and so, yeah, Beyond Clueless is a, it's a feature length film. Uh, that's basically a kind of critical analysis of a bunch of the teen movies that I loved as a teenager, but it also functions like a teen movie. So it has these lengthy montages of uh, various kind of rites of passage of the teen genre as the you know, graduation scene, the house party, all these sorts of things. Um, and hopefully, you know, it, it kind of like evokes that, that sensation of watching one of those films. Um, so yeah, it's, it's strange because already, you know, now that it's getting on for 10 years old, 
uh, it feels like a whole different kind of self-portrait. Uh, but yeah, it, it's been back on movie for I think about a year now, and it's uh, yeah, it's amazing to have people newly discovering it. And actually, like some young people, you know, this is maybe how I earn back my credibility with the TikTok teams is getting a little bit of residual affection from this movie because it does seem like th that is one thing they are interested in is like the teen movies of uh, a prior era i guess they have like nostalgic or not even nostalgic but kind of like retro appeal to them which is horrifying for me to think about right they're both like hyper in the moment with things like TikTok, but then also looking back to the past they never experienced <laughs> it's very yeah, all uh, the, like, like confusing <laughs> It fits in really neatly, I guess, with the kind of like early noughties fashion throwback trend that seems to be happening, which is like unfathomable to me, the idea that we're already throwing back to the early 2000s. Um, but, you know, if it gets me more viewers on movie, then great. <laughs> I'm also just wondering why anyone wants to go back to that era in fashion. I remember it as being fairly traumatizing when it was happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, me too. But I guess that maybe you have to have not lived through it to have the appreciation for it. Right, exactly. Um, I think that segues nicely into the next question about the afterlight specifically. Um, you know, as you said, the premise of the film is that it's composed of various clips um, featuring uh, what I had written down. I'm pretty impressed with this kind of wordplay, a veritable shadow cast, quote unquote, of characters. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I was proud of it. Um, who's, uh, you know, their sole similar characteristic is that they're no longer with us. They're they're dead. Um, what you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to go further into like what inspired this particular bet, like this um, angle from which to assemble those clips. Yeah. So I think I. I mean, like I say, because I mainly make documentary. Um, I think I often view fiction films through a kind of non-fiction lens like almost accidentally i'll find that when i'm watching especially a, an older film uh there's these sort of parallel tracks where you know obviously i'm following the fictional narrative uh but i'm also i've always been fascinated with how films function as a kind of accidental document of their time and their production and their performers um and so i think it, it was the afterlight was really born of that impulse and thinking of you know the the vast uh global archive of film history as both this collection of individual artistic works but also this sort of living breathing or you know or kind of fading document of past events and past places and past people um and so that was what led me to this idea of of creating this sort of assemblage of actors um who though they're no longer alive are living on in some strange ephemeral way through the fact that these performances or these documents of performance still exist and are still being revisited however infrequently um, but also that, that that is obviously such a fragile kind of existence because, you know, who's, who's to say that, that those will still be around in a year, five years, 10 years. Um, and so the idea was to not only gather together hundreds of these moments of performance, but also structure them in such a way that the 
actors themselves are kind of grappling with the uncertainty of that condition. Um, and so that was what inspired the film's other kind of high concept uh, element, which is that it exists as a single 35 millimeter print. And so every time that print screens, it erodes a little bit further. And this film, like so many others, will eventually cease to exist when the print wears away to nothing. Hopefully not for a while, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it could really be any time. And I don't have a copy of the film. There is no digital copy. There's no negative. The only way I have of even watching it is when it's screening, when it's running through a projector. So already it, it kind of is imbued with this strange fading quality. Wow, you really went scorched earth with that concept. <laughs> I know. It was honestly like while I was working on it, it, it was such a daunting prospect, obviously, and increasingly daunting because the more work that went into it, the more sort of bittersweet it felt that it was nearing completion and, and would soon begin to disappear. Um, but at the same time, now that people are actually getting to see it and share in it, uh, I can't yeah, describe how meaningful it is to me to, you know, see people gathered together and, and hopefully, you know, even as the print slowly develops its scratches and blemishes, just seeing hundreds of people take away some memory of it with them is, you know, definitely enough to make up for that. Yeah, I, I had a question here, actually. I, you know, about the fact that it's a, you know, physical singular print and how, you know, it will erode over time, um, like the characters in the film, like film itself, et cetera. Um, I guess I'm wondering like how you hope that plays out. Like, do you have a, you know, a personal dream for what happens to this like living artifact? Yeah, I, I mean, my only, I think my, my only fear, uh, understandably was it getting, you know, lost in transit one week into its life <laughs> and we're already six months in now and that hasn't happened so I'm, I'm feeling a little less freaked out every day about the possibility of something like that um, and obviously I would rather that, that it's you know that this loss was a gradual one and that it has a long lifespan um, rather than it, it suddenly disappearing off the face of the earth tomorrow but part of the, the kind of strange melancholy and pleasure of it for me is the complete unknowability of how that's going to unfold. Um, you know, the film is screening tonight in New York and there could, you know, it's screening at a very professional place with projectionists who really know what they're doing, but accidents happen and it could, you know, get a huge scratch down the entire length of the film this evening. And therefore by the time it screens next week in Chicago, it might be an entirely different movie. Um, and yeah, I think part of that unpredictability is the, is the appeal and the charm for me because, you know, personally for me, the, the, the best thing about physical film, about celluloid, um, you know, I know for a lot of people, they love the aesthetic of it or they love the kind of, um, mechanical properties of it. But for me, the thing I love about it is the really material connection it creates between an audience and every prior audience that has ever seen that print 
And so when I go and see a film on film, that's what I'm constantly thinking about is, you know, based on how this looks, how this sounds, how it's been preserved, like, what does that tell me about where this object began? Who's seen it before? You know, what were they doing? Where were they? What was the context? Um, and so I love that idea that kind of whatever happens, it will tell the story of this film's lifespan and this film's history. Um, even if that is for, you know, for better or worse, even if that involves some terrible uh, irreparable damage happening tomorrow, uh, at least that will always be part of its story, I suppose. I was going to say you should knock on the wood log you're sitting on <laughs> to make sure that doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I, and I, I love what you just said about, um, you know, because I, like many cinephiles, like my friends at the Chicago Film Society, care very much about seeing things exhibited on uh, film when I can. Um, and it's like I have thought about it, but I never really took time to think about what you said about that being like, um, like a circulating artifact. It's almost like, you know, film um, distribution then becomes like this, like movable museum of, you mm -hmm. know, artifacts from the past and even the present with things like your film and other uh, contemporary films that are printed on, on 35. Um, so I think that's a really interesting concept. And it is with your, you know, project in particular, um, it's interesting to think about how that will accumulate these. It's, it, I don't, I'm not sure how much you are aware of the Memoria, the original um, distribution intent of that. Oh yeah, yeah, I've read a bit about it. Yeah, um, actually I think very similar to what you're doing now, but it has changed. Um, so it's less of being like that singular touring um, exhibition experience and now more just that it might never be offered on digital, which is quite a transformation from their original, um, like what they said they were going to do originally. Uh, but it, I guess I'm, you know, as the filmmaker, I, I must imagine that it's compelling to think about this physical object that has only be, has only been seen by, you know, comparatively to the amount of people in the world, um, very few people like having that in your possession. Yeah, I mean, comments and a question. <laughs> no, well, but it does, it, it kind of, it, it makes me think about, because obviously, you know, like you say that it, the, the nature of, of this project and the fact that this film exists as this sort of singular object does bring in, uh, real limitations on audience um and that was always something that uh you know that for me was always a, a a sort of unintentional and unappealing side effect that i never wanted this to become a kind of uh elitist or exclusive thing um and partly that was you know and, and uh, you know, a saving grace was that obviously the other thing I've uh, done by making it exist as a single print is made it completely uncommodifiable. Uh, so there was no risk of, of kind of, you know, making it exclusive in order to enhance its value or anything because there is no value. Uh, but there is obviously a, a kind of disadvantage when it comes to getting as many people as possible to see it. And I, I see my job now essentially as trying to overcome that 
tendency as much as possible and, and making efforts to screen it as broadly as possible and not in just the same handful of major cities that, that get all of the analog film uh, presentation opportunities already. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that for me is a real, uh, is a real problem and, and one to be overcome if at all possible. But at the same time, a big part of the appeal for me of, of doing things in this way was making that act of viewership very real and very material um, and ensuring that everyone who does see the film sees it in a kind of meaningful collective way. Um, which is really a big part of what the film is about, is this idea of cinema as a kind of collectively forged memory. Um, and so if there's, a, if there's an upside to these limitations, it's that I get this incredibly practical sense of if and when and how the film has been seen. And there can be no kind of, you know, I, like I think like many people, one of the frustrations I find with the streaming era much as I find it appealing in other ways, is that viewership becomes this completely abstracted thing. Um, and obviously that can be as cynical as Netflix releasing its viewing figures that just sound like they've been completely made up and we have no way of verifying them. Or it can be, you know, more personal, where as a filmmaker, if you put work out onto the internet, often you just have to trust that people have seen it. And maybe a few people tell you that they have, but ultimately it's still this sort of abstract idea. Um, and I think that can be frustrating for the filmmaker, but it also, in my experience, can be frustrating as an audience member, because part of the appeal for me of cinema is its nature as a, a collective thing. Um, and to feel constantly sort of dislocated from the people who are who are viewing a work with you um to me is is damaging um so that's that's what i see as, as sort of the biggest upside of this is that there's really no hiding from the reality of viewership with this film like if it's a failure and it's only ever seen by you know a hundred people then i will know and I will have to confront that. Um, and if hopefully it's successful and has a long life and is seen by an increasing number of people, I'll also get to feel the reality of that. And hopefully the audience will feel the reality of that too. Are you hoping, like, because tonight it's screening as part of the, you know, invaluable now, you know, in its second edition, um, I can say that it is already invaluable, uh, Prismatic Ground Festival um, at the Museum of the Moving Image, correct? Yeah, yep. Are you hoping that people will kind of keep what they see, I don't want to say a secret, but not rush to letterbox, or are you okay with that, <laughs> <laughs> um, that happening as people continue to see it? No, I mean, my main, my main concern with Letterboxd is trying to keep myself from going and just reading every single word that people write about it on there, uh, which I'm not sure is good for my mental health. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm perfect. You know, like, I, I love that idea, to be honest, that, that, you know, people take a part of it away with them and, and tell other people about it or write about it. Um, 
because I think ultimately that is what will remain. Um, that is all that will remain. Um, so no, I love that. And yeah, I'm very excited that it's, that it's part of Prismatic Ground, which actually I think was a good example last year when that festival uh, debuted as an online only festival. I thought they actually did an amazing job of even in a streaming context, making that festival feel real and feel like a collective exercise. And, you know, I was watching that program from the other side of the world uh, in London, but still felt really intimately connected with the other people who were watching the films and engaging with them and responding to them. So I think it's totally possible to, to do that in the digital realm as well. Um, and hopefully what they're doing this year with a combination of, of online and, and in person can kind of bridge that gap. So now I feel yeah, very, very honored to be a part of it. Yeah, when I saw that your film was playing as part of it and then put two and two together from frequently going to the Chicago Film Society's website and was like, oh, that's the same film, um, was very excited that this is one of your first stops. I think you're going somewhere else after New York, right? And then Chicago? Uh, no, no, that's the next place, yeah. And in fact, I, I was very glad of it because uh, they were, the Chicago Film Society were, I think, the very first people to reach out to me once I uh, announced the existence of the film. Um, so this was like six months ago, uh, keen to show it. And it's just been a question of when since then, but I'm very, very glad we've managed to put it together now. And I think that's going to be a really fun stop on the tour. For sure. Um, so maybe less fun, just because we're going to talk about death again for a second. Um, I'm sure there's a connection between, you know, corporeal death um, as it relates to people and the loss of so much film history in general. Um, I'm sure I don't need to tell you and probably most of the people listening that, you know, most films from the silent era just do not exist anymore. Um, we're in danger of that even now, even in this digital era, that does not guarantee that things will last forever. Um, hence the importance of archivists and, you know, collectors and um, people making an effort to revive these kinds of films so that they have reason to continue existing. Um, so I'm curious about the connection between that reality of film history and cinephilia with the like conceit of your film. Yeah, that was definitely at the forefront of my mind from the beginning. But I think my, the way I viewed it definitely evolved over the course of making the film. Um, not least because those sorts of disappearances that you're talking about, as you say, you know, the further back you go in film history, the less and less survives. Um, but obviously what has survived is very uh, inequitable in and of itself. Um, so, and I, and I think it's hopefully one of the interesting things about the afterlight is you can see those inequities kind of written on the screen. You know, the, the film will cut between, say, a, a segment of a Hitchcock film and it's absolutely pristine and looks like it was shot yesterday, even if it's now 85 years old. Uh, whereas it might then cut into a more recent film, but from a less culturally dominant part of the world or a, a less canonical filmmaker. Um, and 
suddenly, you know, it, it looks like it's barely survived at all. And what we're looking at is this, you know, echo of an echo of an echo of what once existed. Um, and obviously the, the things that inform those choices about what is culturally or commercially valuable and, and should be kept and should be preserved and made available is subject to all the same biases and prejudices as everything else. Um, so I think once I, once I started thinking of that as a very kind of key factor in the film, it made that connection between um, cinema heritage and the, the lives encased within this heritage feel even more charged because, you know, who gets to be remembered and who gets to be, who gets some part of their life preserved in this way is a very imbalanced thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it became really incredibly loaded for me, uh, every one of those, you know, and that, that's before even you get onto obviously my own biases and prejudices in terms of what I choose to select and what I choose to, to put my focus on in the film. Um, so all of that became incredibly charged and, and really, you know, not, not to like uh, put too fine a point on it, but like a matter of life and death, you know, it, it, it felt suddenly like the whole business of archiving and, and, and film archivism was this unbelievably uh, dicey thing um, that I think is often presented in, in quite sort of smiley terms of like, you know, oh, if we can just hold on to everything, then everything's going to be okay. But obviously, we're never going to hold on to everything. And therefore, what we choose to hold on to is uh, incredibly important uh, a discussion to have. I think that that makes me curious. And, you know, as we've discussed, uh, critics are not able to see this, like maybe in advance of speaking with you um, because it is, you know, the single print, et cetera. So I don't know much about the actual content in terms of like which uh clips you've selected. Um, so not knowing about that, I'm curious to hear, and then eventually seeing it, I'm curious to hear about your uh, curation process and kind of how you personally were making those hard decisions about your film. That was an early crossroads I came to was that decision around how much I was going to passively reflect the sort of existing biases of film preservation and film archiving. Um, and how much I was going to push against them. Because to some extent, I, I wanted the film to recognize and reflect this imbalance and, and this problem, um, rather than perpetuate what I think is often put forward uh, as a sort of slightly happy clappy narrative of cinema, which is the idea of cinema as this sort of great universal language and level playing field where cultures and uh, nations and languages all meet and, and have kind of an equal stake, um, which nice as that idea might be, is just clearly not reflected in, in the history of cinema. Um, and so I wanted to reflect the imbalance, but at the same time I found when I completely passively reflected it, uh, you know, for instance, even just, in terms of the material that was available to me, probably 90% or more was English language. Um, and I think to have 
purely passively reflected that would have created a film that was so overwhelmingly English language that it would have seemed almost like a conscious choice on my part. Um, and so then it became a case of threading that needle where I was pushing back against that bias to a certain extent, um, hopefully in order to reveal it. So I think the, the final film is maybe a third English language, which is still by far the biggest percentage, but it's not so overwhelming that you can't engage with the diversity and yet the imbalance between those different cultures and those different languages that are being represented. Um, but yeah, it, 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 was a, it was a delicate thing because I, I really didn't want to fall into that trap of, of kind of um, papering over what are very real um, and very damaging imbalances. Absolutely. No, yeah, that's um, a really fascinating part of it. And I'm sure, so you, you will be in person here with the film next week, right? I will, yeah. Oh, awesome. So we'll have a chance to see, meet you in person, and hear about these processes, I'm sure, um, during an introduction or Q&A. Uh, but for my final question, I did want to ask, what do you hope um, audiences, I guess in general, but you know, since we're talking about Chicago, um, what do you hope uh, people will take from it? I think I like for me what's fascinating is the singularity of every screening. You know, there haven't been that many this far thus far. I think the the one in Chicago will only be maybe the tenth or eleventh screening of the film. Um and yet already it's become so palpable how different the atmosphere is at each screening based on all, all the obvious factors you can imagine like who's there how many people are there what the setting is um just you know what the print looks and sounds like on that day um and so for me that that's kind of the most meaningful thing about these screenings is how much the film is only really one component of what makes the experience um and so yeah i, I hope people if they enjoy the film or even if they don't take away a memory of that occasion that is meaningful to them in some way and whether that's about aspects of the film or whether that's about the surrounding cinematic experience um i think that's that's certainly what's the most meaningful thing to me is this this shared witnessing of you know uh, in this case uh a soon-to-be-gone film. And you'll definitely be in great hands with the Chicago Film Society if um, there's if there are any people to not immediately destroy the print, it would be them. Yeah, this is the, but then this is the problem, is the people who are still uh, projecting 35mm all absolutely love it and take such incredible care that it might just be that the print remains pristine forever because <laughs> there's no, like, uh, there's no cowboys left. Right, I was thinking mistakes. about that too. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like back in the day when they would just like basically sling celluloid across the country, or, you know, across the world, and it was you know being a projector was more of a like a trade versus like a craft, like it is now. So yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, sorry, not a projector. Although having <laughs> <being> a projector. <laughs> having said that, I'm sure I will now you know find myself with like uh, the intern doing their first uh, piece of projection at one of the stops on the tour and immediately 
tearing the whole thing to shreds, but we'll see. Part of me thinks you might be a little excited for that, though. I like when it when I get the first bit of like real damage, like you know, very bad damage. That will obviously be a bit of a rite of passage. Right. Exactly. I hope it doesn't. You know, I hope it doesn't render it unscreenable or whatever. But uh, you know, I wouldn't mind like something really notable. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. And again, um, the Afterlight screens on Wednesday, May 11th, next Wednesday, uh, at Northeastern Illinois University, the, auditori the Auditorium, Building E, 3701 West Bryn Mawr Avenue. Um, for anyone who frequently goes to Chicago Film Society screenings, you'll know where that is. It's at 7.30 p.m. And of course, it's on 35. Uh, visit chicagofilmsociety.com for more information. And I hope to see you being the listeners there and charlie again thank you so much thank you cinecast is a production of cinephile chicago's guide to independent and alternative cinema find us online at cinephile.info where a new cinelist is posted every friday we are also on twitter at cinephile or you can email the podcast directly at cinecastshy at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you if you enjoyed this episode please rate review and subscribe it really does make a difference in helping to support the podcast thanks so much for listening